Want entertainment designed just for you? Then check out customizable streaming TV from Xfinity. It makes your life simple, easy, awesome. Xfinity gives you customizable streaming TV options. Enjoy the most free shows anywhere on any device and even access your streaming apps right on your TV with X1. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Get ready to hear the truth and facts about everything Biker, a show not immune to the facts and says it like it is. Get ready and keep the throttle cracked wide open. Motorcycle Madhouse is about to take you on a wild ride. Now, the fan and Evan Leon side, James Hollywood Machikari. Welcome to this edition of Motorcycle Madhouse. This is episode 31 and I'm James Hollywood Machikari and today we are going to go back to our roots when the wild image of bikers kicked in high gear. Yes, we're going to be talking about Hollister and some of the men who started bikers on the wild ride we have today. Now it's time to crack that throttle and let's get this show on the road. He was a side gunner on the B-24 Liberator in the Pacific Theater on an aircraft named Pacific Tramp. Fueled with a zest largely unknown outside of WW2 combat vets, Wild Willie Faulkner and other early members of the Booze Fighters Motorcycle Club party with other clubs and the Citizens of Hollister at its famous 1947 Gypsy Tour. Prominent at that party, Wynal Willie was used later to teach the cast of The Wild One, a movie inspired vaguely by that event, How to Dress and Act as Bikers. Although the movie in general did not depict Wynal's values, it impacted and enshrined Hollister as the birthplace of the American biker, and Wild Willie as its model. As benefits, a social catalyst, Wynal Willie remained unchanged amidst the changes he helped provoke. On May 2nd, 1996, Michael Krikorkian of the LA Times sat down with Wynal Willie and J.D., who founded the legendary Boots Fighters MC. I'll put the article link in the show notes if you want to take a look at it. In the article, Michael was able to capture the true meaning of how everything started out for us bikers. Before there was Sonny and the Hells Angels, before there was Marlon Brando and the Wild One, there was Wild Willie and J.D., and the South Central Los Angeles Motorcycle Club called the Booze Fighters. On the 4th of July, 1947, the Booze Fighters invaded the Central California hamlet of Hollister, and as Life Magazine memorialized it, took over the town. The incident set up a grown fascination with outlaw bikers, culminating in Brando's legendary the Wild One in 1954. With one exchange that still reverberates, What are you rebelling against, Johnny? Brando's character was asked. What do you got? He snapped. Willie Faulkner and J.D. Cameron, the last surviving founders of the Booze Fighters, look back on their legacy with amusement. To visit with them in Cameron's La Miranda home 
is to recall a distant time when post-war America was bursting with unfocused energy. It was a time when you could have a fist fight with someone and when it was over, you'd have a beer together, says Cameron, who made his living in the freight unloading and trucking businesses where he employed Willie. This was the way before all this guns and dope crap. Yeah, we just had a little fun, says Faulkner. A barrel-chested World War II vet with pinkies as thick as thumbs who lives in Fort Bragg, California and still rides his motorcycle. We didn't do anything wrong. We happened in Hollister, they remember, started with city-approved street racing on the main drag, San Benito Street. Well, maybe a little more, J.D. allows that he may have had a few fistfights. And then Wino Willie begins talking about a town drunk who came into one of the bars. Me, Kokomo, and Gashouse Wilson started buying him wine, Willie says. After his third glass, he fell over. So we tied him to his wheelchair, tied the chair to some car, and dragged him around town. I looked back, and he had fallen out of that chair. So we put him on the hood and started driving again. Slowly, but he looked like he wasn't breathing, so we thought he was dead. We dropped him in an alley, covered him up, and papers, and that took over. Man, later that day, when I was in jail... I looked over and there he was, making a ruckus. It's damn hard to kill a drunk. Wino Willie got his nickname as a seven-year-old boy in Fresno when he would visit local wineries and indulge in the latest vintage. Had landed in Hollister's jail on the charges of inciting a riot. Of course, he tells a different story. They had arrested Red, another one of the booze fighters, for drunk and disorderly. And a bunch of guys had gone over to the jail to break him out. Man, I went over there and told the fellas, let's forget this wild west stuff. Red needs a rest. But of course, the cops figured I was the leader and they grabbed me. Later that day, the judge says, he'll let me out if I listen to my wife. I told him, hell no. I haven't listened to her yet and I'm not going to start yet. He said laughing. What caused the national stir was not the incident itself or a San Francisco Chronicle article that described the events as the worst 40 hours in the history of Hollister. But a single photograph in Life magazine, it showed a large leather jacket man guzzling beer on a Harley with a pile of broken beer bottles lying near his front tire. J.D. and Wino to this day are infuriated by that photo, saying it was staged. Life, life's one-page layout led to Harper's Weekly article by Frank Rooney, The Cyclist Raid, which led to the Brando movie, which sent the image of bikers downhill faster than a wheelie on a steel heel climb. I hated that movie, says Cameron. The most glaring discrepancy between the actual event and the movie was that, unlike the film, 
in which a sleepy town is stunned by an unexpected invasion of a motorcycle gang, Hollister was waiting with open arms for thousands of bikers to converge there. For more than a decade, the American Motorcycle Association had sanctioned an event in Hollister. So on the 4th of July weekend in 1947, an estimated 4,000 motorcyclists descended on the city of 5,000. What set that year's event apart from the others was that this time, 15 members of the Booze Fighters rode north from Los Angeles. Although the Booze Fighters were never mentioned in the Life Spread or the Brando movie, word of mouth spread. Their name was a perfect fit, and soon all the biker world knew. The Booze Fighters had formed in 1946 at the American Cafe, a small beer joint on the Firestone Boulevard near Hooper Avenue, just north of Watts. Many of the members, including Cameron and Willie, were married. They were, by and large, a bunch of guys who loved to race motorcycles and drink beer. Cameron was born in 1915 in Oregon and began racing motorcycles when he was 15. He was rejected for the war because of injuries from a series of crashes. He came to uh, Los Angeles and bought a small freight train unloading business where he met Willie in 1942. Willie, five years younger, had grown up in Fresno where he expanded his early appreciation of fermented grape juice. Survival in the Pacific during World War II developed his zest for kicks. One day, the Army Air Corps took him off of his B-24 bomber because it needed him on another. While on the mission over Iwo Jima, he watched in horror as his regular B-24 exploded and crashed. When I came back, we were hanging out at the club and we figured, let's have fun. This is what we fought to protect, Willie said. The days after the vets came back were a special time, added Cameron. People were happy the war was over and we just wanted to enjoy life. Goldie Miller, a Fremont High School graduate, met Cameron and Willie at the All-American Club. They were some real characters, says Miller. 74 at the time of this writing, herself a free spirit back then, they just loved the party. They wanted to be big time professional racers, but that never happened. Sometimes they go out of the parking lot and duke it out, then come back in for another beer. Miller was at the Hollister event, but her recollection is fuzzy at best. I don't remember a whole lot. I wasn't having too much fun. If I was making a book, I wouldn't have to give any of them a chance to make it to 40. But, really, they were real nice people. And you knew anybody was going to mess with you wasn't going to mess with them. So you had no worries. The next year in Riverside, another ruckus promoted the Booze Fighters' reputation for wildness. The club continued to be active through the 1950s, then simmered down. By 1970, the aged members had scattered throughout the country. Cameron bought a trucking business and kept in touch with Willie, who was working as a trucker. Willie and Cameron 
If heart problems don't hold him back, maybe heading back to Hollister. Now a city of 24,000 back in 1996 when this article was written, bills itself as the earthquake capital of the world. Hollister is already vibrating about the 50th anniversary of the invasion next year. Police and merchants believe that as many as 100,000 motorcycle enthusiasts from around the world may converge there on the 4th of July weekend in 1997. Several groups are vying to put on the trail run celebration this year. At Johnny's, one of the bars the Boost Fighters patronized in 1947, owner Tyson is looking forward to the day when the bikers return to Hollister. I can't wait. We're going to do big business, Tyson said. I'm not really concerned about violence. Heck, even the Garlic Festival in nearby Gilroy has its problems. Across the street at Bob's Video, owner Bob Venzuela is also in favor of the event. People will be coming here from all over the world because they know about Hollister from the movie, he said. This is truly holy ground for motorcyclists. It's its mecca. Today, the Booze Fighters clubs still exist, but it is centered in Fort Worth. Comparisons to the original club are like comparing the cushy, soft-tailed, muffled rides of today's bikes with the rigid frame, roaring Harleys of old. The club, with chapters in Virginia, New York, and California, has strict rules of conduct and members include doctors, lawyers, and law enforcement officers. Wino Willie and J.D. sneer at the new leadership. When I met them, they dressed like business people. Wino Willie says, today it's all about greed. We never made a dime off of this whole thing, and we didn't care either. Wino Willie visited J.D. again last week. He told me, well, Wino, I'm dying. Wino said, and unless he gets this pig valve operation, he will, but he's not a complainer. Cameron, a tall, well-built man, says merely that he's going in for the operation Tuesday. Then he says, we just wanted to have some fun, and we sure did. One more question lingers. What were the real wild ones rebelling against? And J.D. pauses for a few seconds. Well, I guess I'm rebelling against discrimination. You know, all kinds. But for me, just because someone's a biker, they got rules against you. And Wino Willie, I guess it's the establishment that spent three years fighting for. He says, You take off the khakis and the blue and put on some jeans and leather jacket and immediately you become an asshole. Wino Willie, the original wild one, passed away on June 23rd of 1997 at age six, or 76. His parting words to the biker community, As we now go together on the last phase of our journey on earth, we must remind you, the destination was never in question, but the trip getting there, we will cherish in our hearts forever. Our memories our friends, and our family. Well, it doesn't get any better than that. So ride free, be loved, and God bless. Wino Willie. You know, 
That quote from Wino Willie embodies the true biker. Not what the mainstream media tries to portray his bikers as. Bikers are not gun runners, dope dealers, or a menace to society. No, bikers are hard-working, blue-collar workers of this country who built its skyscrapers and its bridges, fought its wars, built the roads, and delivered the goods that are a necessity in everyday life. No, bikers are the heart of America and the last vestige of what it means to be truly free. Guys like Wino Willie set the true lived example of rebellion and what it meant to be free. This segment wouldn't be complete without Wino telling his own story. So here's an interview Wino gave on Hollister and how the booze fighters came about. And the rest, that's all history. One that was in the booze fighters was a veteran. And we all come back with the same thing in mind. Jesus, now we can kind of play and do hairy things uh, and nobody's shooting at our ass. That, that made a hell of a difference in life, you know. <laughs> you, uh, you wasn't really scared much about uh, for the fuzz or about anything. It just, when there's no bullets flying, by God, you can have a pretty good time. So that's when I started hanging around the All-American again because I'd been there before the war and finally uh, joined up with the 13 Rebels. And they had the first AMA-sanctioned uh, quarter mile at El Cajon, California. And being the first race uh, since the war, they didn't perform too good. Me and Blackie was up in the grandstand with the public, and the crowd kind of hissing and booing, and uh, me and old Blackie sucking on that bottle of booze, and I said, Jesus Christ, man, we could put on a better show than this son of a bitch. So we staggered out to the parking lot there, and the road run right down to the big gate they had at the back of the pits there. And he said, well, how the hell are we going to get in there? I said, well, you're going to go right through that goddamn gate. He said, holy shit. I said, all you got to do is just lay down in the goddamn tank and hang on. When you get close to the gate, you'll go through. So we took off going full tilt. And I never looked up at that summit because I was intent on seeing where I'm going through the boards. And shit, the next thing I know, I got the boards are flying and I'm getting sideways. And when I get it straightened up, I'm headed right down the straightaway. Son of a bitch, I don't know how the hell that ever happened. So I just hooked it all on. I thought that batch is right alongside of me. Shit, he just chicken shit it out, never even hit the goddamn gate. Just me by myself. And of course the damn grandstand come alive. They just jumped up and hooping and hollering. And I made a lap around there and O'Iron's come out with the flag rack and like he's gonna hit me over the head and I took a little sachet toward the infield. He dropped that and run. Made another goddamn lap. How the hell I didn't fall down, I don't know. So he come out with the chair the next lap around, and I run him back into the infield. I think I made up to fourth lap. I think I finally fell on my ass in the south turn, and J.D. John come run over and pulled the magwires off this son of a bitch, and I sit there like an asshole trying to crank it for 15 or 20 minutes before I realized it ain't going to run. So when I got back in uh, Friday night club meeting with the 13 Rebels, Jesus, they climbed all over my ass. You son of a bitch, you're flying our colors, you know, destroying our name. And them bastards, they sit there and said, well, you know, the war come along and now we all kind of got things together here. We don't do that kind of shit no more. I said, well, that's good enough for me. I don't belong in this goddamn organization. Give them my sweater and... Went to the All-American, proceeded to have a few whole missions, 
10 cents a bottle, and I was saying to those assholes, we got to start another club. Well, there's an old dude there, the local drunk, Walt Porter, wrote a 45, but he's drunk all the time, day and night. And he was a hell of a jokester. Tell jokes, you laugh your ass off. And uh, so we're saying, well, what are we going to call this goddamn thing, you know? And old Walt Porter says, call it Booze Fighters. So that, we laughed over that for about a half hour. And uh, that's where the name come from. We had three organizations at the time there, uh, L.A. and uh, San Pedro and San Francisco. And we all showed up. We met in uh, Hollister. Uh, you know, we got there the day before the three-day event was supposed to start. And, uh, well, Jesus, so we go through the whole ritual that night, drinking and raising hell. And, and the next night, I think we get uh, Red Dalton got through in jail for just plain drunk. And uh, everybody's in the big hotel bar room there. And somebody said something about, well, let's go down and break Dalton out of jail. Well, I didn't pay no attention to him. But those assholes, he's about 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever. They go down to that little two-bit jail, and they're standing out front, figuring out how they just bust the door down or what. There's three cops standing inside their local fuzz. My old lady said, do you know, they're down there going to break red out of jail. And I thought, Jesus Christ, that's kind of stupid. That bastard's drunk. He needs the rest. He's got a bunk to sleep on now instead of the car or the trailer. So I'm running down there and... Uh, told him, hey, the red needs the rest, so, uh, man, he'll be out in the morning. Let's get back to this hearty partying. Well, there's three cops inside. They're looking through the windows, and they don't know what the hell I'm doing there. But they, uh, yeah, I get all the crowd going back uh, to the bar, and if son of a bitch, they don't come out the door and grab me, throw me in jail for inciting a riot. How mistaken can you get? But uh, I stayed in jail. Went to court in the morning, and I was still about half stiff. Kokomo was in jail. All my friends were there. So what the hell, it was a nice place to be. <laughs> it was quite a trip. I was glad to be around to uh, participate with the boys. There was a lot of love and uh, a lot of competition. I loved to race that uh, big bear, you know, across the desert, the fire breaks, the the riverbeds up the back road and the, the snow and the bullshit, whatever was there, you had to put up with, you know. And when you start one of those things, you got five to seven hundred riders, and the highway patrol leads us down the highway, and then it comes a break in the fence, and they turn us loose, and you start on a fire break. In 1948, I bought a brand new AJS bronze head scrambler just to ride the Big Bear. So the bomb goes off, but I'm just going like a bomb, you know. In the first couple of checks, I'm in something like 10th or 12th signing in on a check, so I know I got this race made. Ain't no way that nobody's going to blow my ass off. Well, somewhere along the line, the flywheel slipped, and those mattresses and AJs had a habit of doing that. Those Englishmen just, didn't, I don't know, they couldn't understand how, what kind of torture we give a fucking engine. The flywheel slips, so the vibration starts, and I'm giving it this shit, and I said, hell, I ain't going to blow a $600 machine up to to get a lousy trophy, there's no money involved in the son of a bitch, hundred bucks or something. So I just backed off, and that fucking JD John come by and that goddamn FH and slapped me on the back, and I said, fuck them flywheels, we're racing. 
Man, I'm telling you, we got going. In one little riverbed stretch there, we passed 45 guys, never put a foot down. They're all pumping in the sand. We're sailing, man. <laughs> We're going, you know. We get up there by Valley Yermo, and the fucking ice is on the road, and it's treacherous, son of a bitch. People are laying on the sides of the road, and we're going dead heat, going like this. And we see all them people stretched across the road. And I said, John, you son of a bitch. I think that's the end of it here. <laughs> Something's wrong here. So we're trying to stop, you get down, both of us go on our ass, we slide across the finish line, that prick beat me across the finish line on his ass. So we go to three point when they're issuing the trophies, right? So there's a goddamn redhead was a secretary, big tall redhead, she had, kind of had a hots for me for some reason or another, I don't know why, but she gave me 37th place, that was 37th place we ended up going across the ice, you know, and uh, and John jumped up, he said, you son of a bitch, I beat you across that line. I said, John, I got the trophy. It says, why no Willie on this son of a bitch? It's about that high. <laughs> a wine glass shot, you know. <laughs> he still pisses about that, he said, you asshole. <laughs> but I'll tell you, that's one hell of a racer. Yeah, no fear, that guy. Hi, this is James Hollywood Machikari, host of the Motorcycle Madhouse and the Biker Angle over on YouTube. If you're looking for up-to-date biker news, then Insane Throttle is the place to be. Daily editorials and news that is dedicated to the biker scene. Come on over and join the number one internet biker news site at HarleyLiberty.com. Or come on over to the Insane Throttle's new YouTube channel for the Biker Angle, hosted by myself. New episodes every Thursday at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 8 a.m. Be there! The biker so fat that he stepped on the scale and said to be continued. We now give you the adventures of Butterball. A road weary old Butterball walks into a saloon to have a cold beer after a long dusty ride. At the end of the bar, he sees a rather good looking lady of the evening. She smiles and asks if he's looking for a good time. Well, haven't been some time since his last snarl and he accepts. After agreeing on a price, she escorts him up to the room and they start humping. After about 10 minutes of furious banging, the old biker asks, So babe, how am I doing? She replies, You're doing about three knots. Three knots? What's that mean? She said... You're not hard, you're not in, and you're not getting your money back. Comers of the music scene, let's get this show rocking for the next segment. Rocking us into the next segment, we got Falling the Flux, Living in Pain.
Custom Clothing Line is bringing the motorcycle and fitness culture together. Be heard and stand out in the crowd with our custom apparel and clothing. If we don't have what you're looking for, we'll bring your ideals to life. We're also proud sponsors of Motorcycle Madhouse on Insane Throttle. Check us out on www.outoftheboxclothingandproductsllc.com. We have great feedback and we'll do our best to keep it that way. Hollywood's Motorcycle Madhouse on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to 
Welcome to this edition of Motorcycle Madhouse News Around the World. Who's a baseball fan out there? Well, I know I am, but I know you better duck when there's flying hot dogs flying at you. A baseball fan was left bloodied and bruised after a large furry mascot accidentally shot her in the face with a hot dog fired from an oversized cannon. Philadelphia Philly supporter Kathy McVeigh was sat in the stands when the green mascot, Philly fanatic, that rascal, started riding around the field in his mobile hot dog launcher. Miss McVeigh said the wayward wiener, wrapped in duct tape, hit her like a ton of bricks as the fanatic fired away. The flying hot dog knocked her glasses off her head and sent the woman to the hospital for a scan of her brain to make sure she didn't suffer a concussion. Can you imagine that, you know, going to a hospital and get a concussion from a flying hot dog? <laughs> the bizarre scene unfolded as Miss McVeigh watched the Phillies take on the visiting St. Louis Cardinals. Boo! At Citizens Bank Park on Monday night. She was sat behind home plate where a batter swings at pitches all day long. When the six-foot, six-inch fanatic emerged from his usual hot dog witch ritual, wearing a white chef's hat and apron, the longtime mascot, one of the most favorite in North America, thanks to his shenanigans. You know, personally, I like the chicken that used to be at Wrigley Field. But anyway, launches hot dogs towards fans from a cannon on the back of a small utility vehicle. Miss McVeigh said she was unable to block the hot dog as it soared towards her head because she has a shoulder industry that needs surgery. She told ABC6, The next thing I know, he shot it in our direction, and BAM! It hit me like a ton of bricks. My glasses flew off. Afterwards, Miss McVeigh of Plymouth, Pennsylvania, was taken to the hospital for a CAT scan. She only suffered a hematoma in one of her ears, or actually her eyes. Why it has ears in this article, I have no idea. Anyway, all a year ago, you know, it was swollen by her ears, and it left her bruised. She told local media that she understands the way she was injured is absurd, and people might find it funny, but she doesn't mind if people have a laugh over her misfortune. Moral of the story? Watch out for flying hot dogs when you go to the baseball game. In other news, teenagers somehow got her head stuck in an exhaust pipe. Yeah, she really got her head ex... <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, we've done something silly after a few too many beverages. And for the 19-year-old Caitlin Storm, that meant testing out whether or not her head would fit inside a stranger's truck exhaust pipe. <laughs> At the end of her scientific study, Caitlin discovered she could indeed fit her head inside it. The difficulty was getting her head back out again. She was stuck for 45 minutes at the Winstock Music Festival in Minnesota. You guys are weird up there in Minnesota, let me tell you. You're raising weird. Eventually being cut free by firefighters using an electric saw. We were just all having fun and I saw the big exhaust pipe and I was like, Hey, my head could probably fit in that. Caitlin told the leaders of the fire department. So I tried it. I did fit, but it didn't want to come back out. But as soon as I tasted freedom, she was cited by 
the sheriff's department for underage drinking. She then had to apologize to the truck's owner. I remember getting my head unstuck and just looked at him and apologized and he said, No, I'm just glad you're okay. Don't worry about it, Caitlin said. She and the pipe have since become borderline celebrities in their town. This is how we raise our kids today. To stick their heads in exhaust pipes. My God. So, lastly, no to sex on roundabouts. Norway's telling its high school graduates. Norway's high school graduates should refrain from running around naked across bridges and having sex on roundabouts lest they give drivers too much of a surprise. The National Transport Regulator said on Wednesday, Norway's annual post-graduation period called Rust last week involves partying and drinking heavily and tends to challenge public morals every spring. Dozens of accidents involving students' red or blue painted vans and buses are reported every year, and sometimes the celebrations lead to crashes killing those aged just 18 or 19. While the list of rituals involved in the Rust celebrations vary from one school to the next, they almost always invariably involve alcohol, nudity, and sex. What the hell was this kind of shit when we were in high school? In a statement titled, No to Sex on Roundabouts, a former minister of transport who now runs the PRA said, Everyone understands that being in and around roundabouts is a traffic hazard. It may not be so dangerous for someone to be without clothes on the bridge, but drivers can get too much of a surprise and completely forget they are driving, he added. Yeah. Don't be kidding me there, man. Holy cow, do we got weird people around the world. And that's the news on this episode of Motorcycle Madhouse Around the World. And welcome back, and uh, you know what? Welcome back to the real world. That strange news segment that uh, they run is just something else. But we're joined with uh, Dave Walters. You know, he has that uh, motorcyclism, as uh, Good Time Charlie says, history down pat. So we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Hollister and a little bit more about the early history of uh, bikers and how it all went down during World War II, before then and after that. How you doing, Dave? I'm good. How you doing, Hollywood? Yeah, pretty good, man. Pretty good. Pretty good. So let's jump right into this, man. You're, you know what? You're an encyclopedia on this, and I think it's important for everybody out there to get to know the facts and to, uh, you know, get rid of some of the, you know, rumors and all that kind of stuff that was put out there in the early days and get to know what really happened. And uh, you're the man we're going to go to. So uh, can you give us an overview of what you got? You know, I like uh, what is that uh, Double Barrel once uh, on your show. It said nobody should ever call themselves an expert, and uh, I absolutely wholeheartedly believe that. Um, especially, I think when you're dealing something with like you know history and, and especially motorcycle history, how much of it is fact versus just very cool legends and myths and everything else. And I think that's probably what interests me the most to keep on learning. Is I, I feel like every day I can learn something new. And you know, if, if you're out there and and you are in a club, man, I 
all of us should be hopefully asking those old guys, those gray beards and those original members if they're left, you know, some of the history so that this shit, you know, isn't lost. And maybe sometimes we get more than just, you know, hearsay and, and we get a little bit more fact behind it. I think the coolest part, uh, maybe it's just me, uh, the coolest part about this life is, is some of the history that, that goes along with it. And I want to help preserve it in any way I can. Um, by no means is anything that I've ever researched or come up with 100% infallible i'm always open to uh someone else's input or insight something i may not know so by no means am i an expert but i absolutely like i I love this shit i live for it i could eat motorcycle history you know morning noon and night um and i especially love the early periods like you're talking about um looking at stuff like you know the gypsy tours and hollister and kind of how all that kind of stuff came about after the the culture that kind of evolved out of world war ii um you know hollister wasn't the it wasn't the first rally. It wasn't the first time something had ever been put on. Um, the gypsy tours, I think, have been going on. And somebody can correct me on this, absolutely. I believe since, like, 1917, maybe a little bit earlier, um, the Federation of American Motorcyclists were, were putting on some gypsy tours. Um, I think it was Laconia might have been the first one back in, like, 1917. And, again, that's just some of the stuff that, that I've come up with. People can, can correct me on that. Um, and they well, were just, they were well before we go, well before we go on, what's a gypsy tour for those that don't know? We're just getting new to the lifestyle. So, yeah, so a gypsy tour is an AMA event. Well, nowadays it's an, it's an AMA event. Before it would have been, you know, the Federation of American Motorcyclists, and then the AMA in '25 or whatever. Um, and it was called the Gypsy Tour basically just because of the distance that people traveled, and they would camp and have bonfires and all this stuff, and put on biker games, races, hill climbs, time trials, that kind of stuff. Um, and that really, you know, they were gypsies that, that came in for these events, and hence the gypsy a lot tour. Of stuff and that's been, a lot of stuff that's been lost today that, uh, <laughs> you know, these bigger rallies took over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, a perfect example, like you said, um, Sturgis and the Jack Pine Gypsies, um, which, of course, the legendary Pappy Hoyle, who kind of started Sturgis, was a member of the Jack Pine Gypsies Motorcycle Club. And, and they started hoping, hosting gypsy tours that, that, like you said, kind of turned into the behemoth that is Sturgis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know what? Before we uh, go uh, on a little more stuff with you, one burning question out there, and you addressed it in one of your articles, is the one percenter uh, designation. Was that from the AMA? You know, again, one of those awesome things is kind of up to myth and legend and maybe a little bit lost to history. Um, you know, there's there's reports out there that the AMA had almost been, and there's always been a little bit of animosity between certain groups of, of rebel bikers and the AMA. Um, the AMA had been using the term outlaw for, I think it's like the late 20s is kind of some of the stuff that I found. It was being pushed as early um, as the early 20s by the Federation of American Motorcyclists and then the AMA. As, as a way to almost shame um, bikers that weren't a part of the AMA and weren't participating and paying dues and kind of on the registry rolls and things like that and attending, you know, they were they were hosting these unsha- unsanctioned events, which, of course, the term outlaw events uh, comes to be. So I think, you know, out of Hollister, there's no record. There is no recorded record anywhere of the AMA saying that they um that the one percent of motorcyclists was causing all the ruckus. Um anybody that's familiar with um Dr. Uh, Delaney, he is kind of a um I think he teaches at the Air Force College now or, or he had previously or something like that. He's a veteran, a motorcycle historian, kind of a uh, a cultural anthropologist and stuff like that. He puts down some really good um information on that as far as a couple of interviews 
that came out about mm-hmm. the AMA incident and, and where the term or uh, the idea of the one percenter kind of came from. Do we have time to, uh, do you want me to expand on that, or is that all you want me to take on? No, no, this is a subject that a lot of people out there uh, would like to hear about. Yeah, and I think, you know, like like Dr. Delaney says, you know, you see between the the obviously famous photograph in Life magazine um, taken by that Barney Peterson of Eddie Davenport kind of drunk on the motorcycle, um, between that photograph and Life and then, you know, kind of some of the other stuff, it just took on a, a life of its own and became that – 99% versus versus the 1%. Um and if we kind of start with 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 Eddie on his motorcycle, um you know, that's not even Eddie's motorcycle. Eddie Davenport, the gentleman on the motorcycle in that in that famous picture. Um uh, that was a, a gentleman. Photograph. Yeah, and, and Barney um Barney Pearson who had taken the photograph, it sat for like 3 or 4 weeks or something like that in the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, before it was even picked up by Life magazine, and nobody at the time for those first few weeks really cared. They had, um, you know, big news was coming out of how Japan was kind of reorganizing. I think there was, like, some kind of union strikes going on that were big at the time, and that kind of dominated um, the headlines. And then Life had this section where they published kind of a a what's happening sort of thing with, with photographs and not a whole lot of backdrop or words to it, and that's kind of what blew up um, blew up the picture for, for Barney is because it, no – Real words went along with it, so the public could just kind of take from it what they will. And there's a really cool story of a guy. There's a cool story of uh, the younger gentleman with the black hair in the back of the famous picture. His name is Gus, and he he was a Hollister resident, and he was the one that kind of started the whole uh, the picture stage phenomenon. And he was there, and he saw him kind of spreading the beer bottles around, and he saw Barney who may or may not have already known um, Eddie Davenport kind of getting him to get on the bike and whether or not Davenport was really drunk or they gave him the beers to hold on to um, during the picture and stuff like that is really just a cool, a cool thing. Um, <laughs> Propaganda, basically. Is yeah, it, and I think it in see, uh, 2003 or 2005 when uh, the AMA came out saying they had no record of that statement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the AMA, I said, they said that they actually released a famous, or no, I guess semi-famous press release that they said at this point it's basically, who cares? It's already accepted fact. But for what it's worth, we have no published records in our archives of any statement from the AMA ever saying that. Um, mm-hmm. And really, I think what that comes through, talking about Dr. Delaney, I kind of got off track there. Um, and if anybody knows this guy, I would love to chat with him. He just like inspires me all the time. I love the works that this dude puts out. But, um he he cites in his works, he wrote a, a, a doctoral dissertation for Florida State, and he talks about two letters that were written to, to Life magazine that probably more affected the fabrication of the 99 versus the 1% than, than anything else. Um, there was an editor of the magazine Motorcyclist, um, and he speaks, uh, he writes to Life, and he talks about him and some of his colleagues, um, and he doesn't claim that any of his colleagues are from the AMA. This dude that wrote the letter is not from the AMA. But he talks about how it was just some unruly citizens, um, you know, the 4,000 motorcyclists that showed up. He says a small percentage of them were unruly, where everybody else was, was law-abiding and, and family-going and stuff like that. But he never says what percentage or anything like that. But you can obviously see between the picture and this letter to the editor how the idea of a um, 1% myth would, would take hold. Um, and then there's another one. Uh, Mr. Well, an- well, another another uh, you know 
I guess, uh, after listening to uh, Wino's interview, Hollister was actually expecting all these motorcyclists. It wasn't like in the wild one where they just showed up and caused trouble. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and there's a letter to light, the second one that, that Mr. Delaney cites, um, where the set, where the guy writes in and says, you know, it was probably 50% members of the AMA and 50% motorcyclists who were just out for a three-day holiday. And the guy says less than 400 of those even made a debacle of the street racing and drunkenness and all that, which even that number is a little bit high. If you look at the Hollister police records, they say 60 motorcyclists were um, arrested for misdemeanors. And there was like about six injuries, all from from racing and bike events. So, you know, but when you so when that you start just goes for, to show everybody the power of propaganda when uh, exactly, and I think you know it ties in perfectly. It ties in perfectly to some of the stuff you talk about today. We still see propaganda um, against bikers. Uh, I think you know who you had Rooster on. Uh, um, Rooster Katana the other day, he talked about how police profiling was probably worse in the 70s and 80s than it is nowadays. It's just more, we see it on social media. We have more ways to capture it. Where back then there was no checks and balances. Cops could put a shotgun to the back of your neck and nobody's going to record it. There are no cell phones. It's, it's your word against, against theirs. And right. I think you see a lot of that on a smaller scale when it comes to, to the Hollister ride. They had permits to street race. Um, you know, like you mentioned, the town, the town loved having this come in. It was big revenue. You're talking about a farm town that had maybe 4,000 residents at the time, 5,000. All of a sudden they get an influx of bikers who need hotel rooms. They need to eat. They need to drink. Guys were, you know, they talk about guys sleeping in alleyways. Bartenders were renting out their back alleys so people could pitch campsites. They weren't just, they weren't, you know, vagabonds who just fell down in your alleyway. They paid money to, to put sleeping rolls down there. Mm-hmm. Now, how was it during World War II? Because a lot of these events, uh, you know, stopped during World War II because, uh, like you said, what, the steel and all that uh, was not allowed and there was a lot of uh, rationing. Yeah, yeah. They, obviously, a lot of that stuff, your your metals and your steels and your aluminums used for automobiles and motorcycles and things like that were going to the war effort. And not only that... But your your men that would be riding these bikes back then are, are fighting the war effort. So uh, the gypsy tours went away from like 42 or 43 until almost 47, I think, is when they, they started up again. So you've got a three- or four-year period. And, and, and not only that, you know, you think about the emergence of the motorcycle became so popular after World War II because, you know, automobiles hadn't really kick-started again yet. We're still kind of coming out of that whole rationing thing. Guys were coming home. They they're basically getting dropped off in like California and then like, hey, you know, find your way home. So you've got you've got these guys with, with a little bit of money in their pockets, the cheapest mode of transportation and easily accessible is a motorcycle, and they're getting dropped off in California. Mm-hmm. On Independence Day, what else are you gonna do but ride your motorcycle to go find a party? And you know, in the thirties, you know, they'd expect a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred motorcycle members. All of a sudden you've got four thousand combat vets with more easily accessible motorcycles and some money in their pocket. They just weren't prepared for that, and I think that kind of helps add to that growing myth and that legend. And I, I don't, I don't want it any other way. I love the story, how it is, and people say, well, it's a black eye for the biker community. And all that. I think we're past that. I think it's just a very cool niche in our history that kind of grows the legend and grows the myth. And I think as long as you look at it objectively from all the different angles, it's just very some. It's something very cool to kind of study up and and learn about. Right, right. Now, who were some of the other clubs that were? Uh at Hollister. Wasn't it Rebels 13 and a couple more? 
Oh, there's so many famous, like, and you think about this life, um, just so many famous clubs that, that kind of attended that. Yeah, the 13 Rebels, obviously the Blues Fighters were there. Um, clubs like the Jackrabbits, Sharks, Top Hatters, I think the, the Galloping Goose, I think, had attended and stuff like that. I mean, just some of these clubs that are just so famous coming out of the, the 20s, 30s, and, and early 40s. Which ones of those are still around? Uh, I think most of those are, are still around. Um, the Pissed Off Bastards, the Market Street Commandos, I think they went on to form um, some HA chapters, but are, have been kind of revived. I'm not sure about the uh, the Market Street Commandos, but there are some chapters of the, of the Pissed Off Bastards. Um, obviously, the Goose still around. 13 Rebels, I think, have an 81-year AMA charter or something like that, 82 years of being AMA chartered. Obviously, we all know the Blues Fighters are, are still around. The Top Hatters are, are still around. Um, the Jackrabbits and the Sharks, I'm not as familiar with. I, I'm not sure if they're still around, so I don't want to misspeak and offend anybody that might be a part of those clubs. I'm just, you know, that's just one of those things that I don't know because I, I am not an expert. <laughs> I'm just an enthusiast. Right. Well, you know, for those who, uh, you know, again, are just joining the program and maybe new to the motorcycle community, what is uh, AMA chartered compared to uh, the other charter type of uh, motorcycle clubs out there? So, you know, and like we talked about with the, with the outlaw designation, was just people that didn't want to pay dues and be on the registry rolls of the AMA, and, and the AMA would shame them and call them outlaws, and their events were unsanctioned. So they were, they meant the term to be, to be dirty at the time. You know, like you're, this is a dirty event, and you don't want to be a part of it because it's outlawed. And really, again, it comes down to, to in my mind, propaganda. Um, somebody that was AMA chartered would, you know, they they had like a code of conduct they wanted them to adhere to. They had dues that they had to pay. Maybe not only to their, maybe not only the club membership had dues they had to pay, but you also had to pay to the AMA a fee. Um, there were certain rules if you were going to put on a run or an event, a race that you would have to follow, and and things like that. And you still see that today. I think the animosity of the AMA trying to shame other clubs has gone away. Um, I think that would be a horrible PR disaster today for them to do it. Obviously, some clubs still carry that animosity um, or that attitude towards the AMA, and you can understand why. And some clubs, you know, they love being AMA chartered. They use it to help put on runs and events and organize field races and things like that, which, you know, is great for the for the life. I think in the last few years, I think there's been a huge boom of, even if they're not necessarily AMA sanctioned, those type of events coming back, the, the hill climbs, uh, the TT and and um, flat track racing, some of the uh, the biker games like the slow rolls and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you're seeing those those come back into more popularity. Right, right. Now those, you know what? Anybody who hasn't seen a hill climb or a flat track race, they're missing out. That I can tell you. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. <laughs> you know. Those hill climbs are something else, man. Those guys, they got uh, balls of steel, if you ask me. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, after, you know, Hollister happened, how did the the scene start to change? Uh, well, again, you, you kind of had those that were more of the, the, and I'm not sure the term that I'm using here is correct, but just for the sake of the argument, I'll say more family oriented types that were trying to maybe, distance themselves from some of the shenanigans that went on in uh, in Hollister, whether that was right or wrong is, is anybody's thing. But then, you know, the very next year, you have the Riverside Riot. And, and the Riverside Riot was like the riot, again, that 
just like Hollis, there was a riot that that wasn't. Um, there was like I think like fifty or forty arrests or something like that 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 happened for the uh, Riverside riot, and there was one death. There was unfortunately one death attributed um, to Riverside that was written about in the paper. It was a car accident that happened a hundred miles away from the Riverside rally, but it was attributed to the <laughs> to the riot at Riverside in the paper. They said that this death was responsible from the from the Riverside rally. Right. Now, you know, I don't know how that works. I don't know how a car accident 100 miles away makes you responsible at your rally, but apparently in the 1948 newspapers, that was the thing. Well, that's what I was just going to bring up. A lot of people don't understand the culture back then of America is like uh, about 360 than what it is today. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. What they would consider bad back then, we would consider like, what the hell are you talking about today? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and back then they 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 would talk about the injuries from these rowdy rallies and these unkempt bikers and everything else. But when you do the when you kind of do the history on it, the injuries were from the sanctioned racing, which is inherent in any sport that you play or any activity you do. And and the unkempt bikers, well, you were charging them money to sleep behind your bar. I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot of bars with some outdoor showers, but you know these guys obviously are just. There to hang out with their with their buddies, have some fun, drink a few beers after World War II. Who the hell can blame them? <laughs> and after you take their money, you're calling them dirty and unkempt and, and unruly. Right. Now, everybody knows the movie The Wild One. If they haven't seen it yet or heard about it, then they must be in outer space or something like that. But the, Marlon Brando, the Marlon Brando character, that was based on Wino, wasn't it? So um, the thing that I always read, and again, one of those myths, legends, and realities, was that um, Wino was kind of based off of um, of Chino. Or, uh, Chino, I'm sorry, Chino was kind of based off of uh, off of Wino and Lee Marvin, and then Brando was actually kind of um, formed or uh, molded after a uh, member of the Thirteen Rebels by the name of Tex Bryant, who was one of the oh, founders. I didn't even know. Wow. And if that's just for publicity's sake, whatever, I don't know. Maybe a member of the 13 Rebels and the Blues Fighters would know better than I. That's just kind of a story that I've always seen. And, and Tex was one of the founders of the 13, 13 Rebels, who, of course, were one of the um, top-seeded 13 AMA racers in California at the time when they when they formed. So Tex and Wino had been in the same club. They had been 13 Rebels together. And the 13 Rebels, the story kind of always has that implication where – were much more serious about their racing. Wino loved to race and he loved to party and sometimes the two overlapped each other and, and that was a little bit more than what the rebels were willing to put up with. They wanted to race first and, and take it seriously and, and party after. Um because these guys were, were very top seed you know, they were very serious about their racing. They're top seeded guys, they're winning prize money, they're winning, you know, national championships and, and things like that. Um the thirteen rebels I think at the nowadays have four AMA Hall of Fame racers or something like that in their that were a part of their club. Mm-hmm. So the story goes, Wino got it a little too, and again, like how much of this is myth or fact, uh, Wino got it a little bit uh, too inebriated before race, uh, plowed his way or snuck his way or somehow got onto the racetrack on a bike, did a couple laps, took back off, uh, might have taken out a gate or something like that, <laughs> and went back <laughs> to partying. And that was that was kind of the last straw for the 13 rebels and they asked him to leave or, or kicked him out. And, and he formed the boots fighters, obviously. And, and then the story goes that, that Chino was a little bit more wild. So he was based off of, uh, off of Willie 
and Tex Bryant was a little bit more serious, and that was kind of the basis for for Brando's character, whether or not that's there's any truth to that or not. You know, that's an interview I'd love to get as somebody from the 13 Rebels and the Boost Fighters, man. You know, the history is just wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And even if that story is complete fabrication that was just helped to promote the movie, it's still an awesome part of club history that, you know, all the animosity towards it should be gone. Those guys, they get along now. They party. You know, that was a story back then was that they still partied then and that the, it was just used to sell movies and stuff like that. So either way, it's become kind of a part of as a biker, it's become part of the legend, and I think it's just it's cool to to hear about. It doesn't necessarily always have to be 100% factual, as long as it's you know kind of showing the history of where we come from and things that influenced our culture. And I no doubt that the wild one certainly influenced the culture. Right, right. You know, it, it's kind of funny how the culture was back then compared to what it is now. It was like, it was, it, you know, it just seems like it was more freewheeling back then, more fun, and uh, there wasn't that many beefs, and if there was beefs, you know, you have a fist fight, and afterwards, uh, have a beer, but uh, things sure have changed. Yeah, and, and like I, I talk about um, Dr. Delaney as being a huge, you know, somebody that I love to read about. Um, Bill Hayes, who I believe is a blues fighter, is also a, a kind of a, a legendary writer and kind of historian and, and stuff like that. He's wrote the the tales of the original Wild Ones. He wrote um, the Encyclopedia, the One Percenters Encyclopedia. He's got the Myth and Fact book out. Uh, a couple of other ones, you know, Bill Hayes, and he tells some great stories about the the early days as well. And he talks about a blues fighter that, you know, Gil. Gail and another blues fighter named C.B. Clawson, they wanted to go to uh, the rally of the races in uh, in Daytona. And they had like a dollar fifty. I mean, they're in Southern California, and they had like a dollar fifty between them. And they're like, well, shit, we can't get to Daytona on a buck fifty. So they come up with this plan. They had some overhaul bikes with some stroker engines in them, and, and they come up with this plan that they were going to drag race people because the bikes were kind of sleepers. They didn't really look like they were going to blow your doors off or anything like that. So they drag race guys. Um, from California to Daytona, um, and they wanted to make so much money before they got to Daytona that they'd be able just to come right back to California because they were afraid if they stopped the race again, guys would be <laughs> on to them, and they'd be in for a fight. Um, so, the, so they did. They managed to win enough prize money to make it to Daytona and back to California. And the legend from Bill Hayes goes that when they got back to the Big A, the bar that they hung out at, they emptied their pockets and still had about 500 bucks between the two of them from the drag racing. Right. <laughs> well, you know what? It's you stuff know, like that that I love, no matter what what club or 99%, 1% AMA, non-AMA. I mean, stories like that are just, that's the stuff that I love. Right, right. It's just more freewheeling, man. You know, what uh, the biker life should be. But you know what? You're such a wealth of information, and I know we're on a time thing right now. I'd like to have you back uh, next episode and continue this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, your show, I love listening to it. If you uh, if you get a chance to find some some thirteen rebels, some blues fighters, some some top hatters, something like that, that could speak more intelligently about Hollister and history than than I can. That's something that I would definitely love to hear and tune into. Well, you you know what, you can bet I'm gonna be shooting out emails. I'm actually on the thirteen rebels MC website right now, uh, looking after contact information because uh, you know history is something that uh, we all need to know and. Uh, you know, it's just amazing how those guys were back then compared to what it is yeah. today. So, and, you know, I think I think getting guys like Dr. Delaney, Bill Hayes, some other ones that are out there. Um, I like John Hall's book and and stuff like that. Um, 
you know, the majority of the literature that's out there that, that kind of surrounds the motorcycle community, it focuses on, on bullshit and, and this antisocial behavior or this, you know, very small element of criminal activities or something like that uh, of this subculture. And very few people are putting out the positive spin out there of the history or the good things or, or just the brotherhood and the life. And, you know, not everything has to be focused on, on a tell-all to sell books or something like that or to make a movie. Um, you know, focus on our history, focus on the good stuff that's going on, focus on the bonds and the brotherhood. I mean, people, if you're going to write a book, I'd rather read about that and, and the history of your club. I don't care what club you are, I'll read your, your history. than you know, some lawyer or something like that who's going to make a few bucks selling some bullshit story about a criminal element or something like that, that, that makes up such a small per- percentage. Well, you're right. You know what, uh, you know, the biker community, independence club, whatever they're in, you know what? They do so much charity work. They do more than the government does for people. And all the media wanted to do is uh, throw a narrative out there that, you know, this very small percentage of anybody who's involved in that kind of stuff, you know, represents the whole community as a whole. That's just wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, it doesn't have to be 99%, like the independence, 1%. I mean, you, you can combine them all, and the the amount of people that are doing piss-poor stuff or, or kind of giving a black eye to the community or whatever is, is such a minute fraction compared to all the cool stories of racing, brotherhood, riding state-to-state state and stuff like that. Uh, that makes up such a larger percentage. Let's, you know, I want to see people focus on that. Well, it does, and you know what, and I think a lot of people are starting to focus more on that because you can, well, doing the madhouse and, uh, you know, throwing out the stories like we do on the same throttle, you can see a lot of the people are, you know what, they're just getting away from, okay, you know, that section of uh, the biker community. They're more interested in, you know, moving forward, doing good for people, and nobody wants to sit there and go to prison anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think it's I don't think there's a uh, a certain aspect of the culture like oh well you're you're in this mom and pop or you're in this or you're in that that makes it. I think there's good people all across the board, and we need to get back to we need to or not get back to, but we need to focus more on that. Yeah, focus more on that instead of politics and stuff like that. But uh, you know what? I really appreciate you having on, Dave, and uh, I'm going to bring you back, and we're going to, you know, go on a little more about uh, Hollister because that's something that we talk about forever, especially yeah, if I get somebody from the 13 Rebels or the Boots Fighters on. And uh, moving forward through, you know, the early 50s and 60s is, uh, you know, I think another time period in the history of bikers that really started forming, you know, the outlaw image. Yeah, and I think you touched on it before, not to hold you up here, but, you know, when you look at the difference in the, the culture shifts and, and what was happening in the turn of the century when motorcycles were becoming more popular and some of the early 1900-whatever clubs that were coming out in the 20s and the 30s and then the boom after World War II and guys coming back from these just horrific battlefields and things like that. And then, you know, again, seeing the, the change in the culture and, and kind of how we love. We love the World War II veteran. And we welcomed them home and threw them parades and they probably got laid in the streets and then you know, the Vietnam vet came home and it's like you didn't even want to tell people that you were a Vietnam vet and kind of how that changed the motorcycle community. And then, you know, in the 80s, we see kind of a decline or the last breath of things like, you know, steel and manufacturing and coal and kind of mm-hmm. how it's on its way out and how, how those hard times shaped the motorcycle community. And now we see guys like myself that are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and we're kind of welcomed home and then we're kind of not welcomed home and, and everybody wants to shake our hand because it's cool on TV. But then we kind of, 
we kind of don't want to talk about the war kind of thing and social media and all that, how it, how it changes the perception of, of the new biker that, that's coming out. And I think all these different time periods are just really cool to, to look at. I know you've done a little bit of that. Mm. Yeah, we're going to be focusing a lot more on history and stuff like that, the good uh, angle instead of uh, all the bad stuff. You know, one interesting interview, well, on the last episode was Zeke. He was a Korean War vet, and, you know, hearing from guys like that is uh, what we're really going to start focusing on now. Yeah, I loved I loved hearing Zeke's stories about the old clubs that he was in back in the day and how they would just go somewhere and, like, field race and then hang out in the grass and – and drink some beers or something like that. I love, I loved hearing that story and, and hearing stuff like that. And I think you asked him, uh, you know, are you, are you, are you wishing, you know, are you glad you, you came up when you did back in the day? <laughs> I think you said something like, shit, yeah, I'm glad. There's no way I want to be a biker. Uh, you know, I'd want to be coming up, um, in today's society or something like that. He liked it way back when. He's like, I'm glad I'm as old as I am. <laughs> well, I thought that was pretty good. Then it was based on different values back then than it is now. Yeah. Now it's yeah. all, you know, SOA bullshit, and, you know, I think a lot of uh, the young ones really need to get into the history to know, hey, you know, MCs weren't built around that. Yeah, and, I, and I've touched on it before. It's a, it's a two-part process. You know, us younger guys, we have to be, you know, the image of us is kind of maybe more me-now generation. We're a little bit more maybe we're hot-headed or we're know-it-alls or whatever. We have to, you know, you have – think or you know listen twice as much as you talk and listen to the graybeards while they're still here and, and and some of the graybeards you know you just want to bitch about our generations and this and that you you know stop and open up and 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 teach us and and find that common ground where the, the young guys bring them in that want to listen and discard the ones that don't and and you know for the young guys find the graybeards that, that want to teach you and, and eat that shit up soak it up exactly well, you know what? They need to go find themselves a Vietnam vet graybeard because those are the ones that tell you like it is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, I think they're you starting about... to age out right now, which is sad, you know, because most of the W2, W2 vets in a couple of years will be gone. But, you know, the Korean Vietnam vets are really what people should be looking at. Yeah, and you look at the difference too. The the average age of the vet that went to World War II is it was 26, and then the average guy going to Vietnam was uh, 19. I mean, so just the difference in your maturity level, kind of like how your brain is. I mean, between 19 and 26 is, is a huge jump, and I think that kind of plays into what kind of veteran we got back and, and what they had to see, and, and then of course how the the different society, how different society was in, in welcoming them back. I think all plays a role in in the change in the biker culture too. Right, right. Well, you know what? I appreciate having you on, Dave. And, uh, you know what? Like I said, next episode, I'm going to reach out to you and we'll continue this conversation because, you know what? It's real interesting and it's something everybody out there needs to know. Well, feel free to bump me off in order to put more booze fighters and rebels and sharks and top hatters. And if I find any jackrabbits or jackpine gypsies, feel free to bump me for those guys. <laughs> I'm going to be uh, looking for it, man. I'm going to be sending out the, the media request today. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. Have a good day. You too. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Motorcycle Madhouse. Don't forget to go over to Insane Throttle's new YouTube channel and check me out over on Biker Angle. Also get your daily dose of biker news every morning at HarleyLiberty.com. If you haven't done so already, go like the new Motorcycle Madhouse Facebook page. And until next week, I'm James Hollywood Machikari. And remember, keep that throttle crack wide open. 
Want entertainment designed just for you? Then check out customizable streaming TV from Xfinity. It makes your life simple, easy, awesome. Xfinity gives you customizable streaming TV options. Enjoy the most free shows anywhere on any device and even access your streaming apps right on your TV with X1. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. What's in store this holiday at your local Staples? Gifts and packages shipped with care. So you can relax in knowing they'll soon be there. Now at Staples, you get 15% off UPS shipping services and 15% off all shipping supplies. Plus, Staples is open seven days a week. So you can ship around your schedule this holiday. And still get everything out in time while spending less. Staples, there's a whole lot in store this holiday. Exclusions apply. In-store only, see associate for details. Ends 12 29 